The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray together as a church. Father, we've just finished reading what you have provided, what you breathed through by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark, depend down to have preserved for us. And we now look to you, God, for this word is from you. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And our hearts, God, need your word to penetrate deep that we would be changed. God, we live in a world that is always chaotic, always broken, and at times it is all the more abundantly clear as in the days we live right now. But we are reminded from your word that you have not forsaken this world. Rather, it it is your love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God, we believe in that promise. We believe that you are making everything new, that you are redeeming what sin has done. And so we look to you now, God, desperately in need to hear from you, to be strengthened by you, to have our our thinking rightly um, directed as we live this life of faith to your glory. Bless your church, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter... 15. So, before we dive into the text this morning, um, we're going to do some some page turning. So, be sure you keep your your finger or a bookmark in chapter 15 of Mark. Um, But let's first turn to Colossians. Colossians 1, chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. I didn't put a bookmark there myself. Got to find it. All right, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 15 and read through verse 20. Speaking of the kingdom of his beloved son, speaking of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And with that resonating in your hearts and minds, let's turn to Hebrews now. Opening chapter of Hebrews. opening chapter of Hebrews. So let's buckle up, because let's read this whole chapter. (laughs) All right. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Sound familiar? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Are you taken? Are you taken as I am by the majesty of Jesus beheld in the text just read here? And we even sang this morning, behold our God, right? Behold our God. One of the favorite songs we we lift our voices to behold our God and King. Nothing can compare. And these passages just herald that with, with oomph, right? Just power. This is the same Jesus. This is Jesus who's riding into Jerusalem on the fold of a donkey. The commencement, the commencement of, of Christ's kingdom. And early on in the gospel, Okay, early on in the gospel, when Jesus arrived on the scene at the start of his earthly ministry, what did he preach? Do you guys remember? What did he preach? Mark chapter 1, first chapter, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God was at hand because the king of kings, Jesus, had arrived on the scene. The the majesty on high of whom we just read about has set foot on the earth he made. and And he embarked on the mission his father sent him to accomplish in establishing a kingdom of righteousness ruled in uprightness. Now let's read, that's the commencement of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom. Now let's read the, the consummation of Christ's kingdom. One more page turn. Revelations. Revelations 19. Revelations 19. The consummation of Christ's kingdom. The rider on a white horse. Verse 11. Let's pick up our Bibles and read there. We're going to read through... You know, this is speaking of the ultimate end, the finish, the the return of King Jesus, of whom the brightness of his coming destroys the lawless one. 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like, whoa, right? Do you guys get the mental picture of that? That's just, I love that, that section. I mean, I love all the guys' word, but that is just a mental pow of our king returning, the consummation of his kingdom, the supremacy of our king. In righteousness, he judges and makes war, war against all lawlessness and rebellion, treading the winepress, I mean, listen to this verse, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, ruling judgment of the nations with a rod of iron, blazing eyes of fire, and a tattoo on his thigh that repeats the words written on his robe, his bloody robe, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who can stand before our king? We sang that this morning. Who can stand before this king? No one. Jesus is supreme. His majesty is unparalleled. The greatness, the dreadfulness, the awesomeness of our God and King, Jesus. This is him. And that is what is so strikingly amazing about the crowning of Christ as King. Okay? That is what it is so striking about this. The, the, culminating, the culminating moment that Christ is crowned as king, which is where we find ourselves in the text this morning, in the pages of Scripture. If you want to turn back to, to Mark chapter 15, remember we have... We have the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Okay, I want you guys to see this flow here. The consummation of Christ's kingdom, which is his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where we see Jesus, where we see his, his humble confidence as king and acting as king. He's, he's directing the events with, with precision and humility. Then the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Right? The ultimate end, his, his second coming, where we see the return, the return of Jesus to rule and reign supreme forever and ever in unsurpassed majesty and power to the glory of the Father. And before us today, before us today, in the, in the midst of these events, is the crowning of Christ as King the likes of which has never been seen before or ever will again. We see him, whom we just read about, we see him who knew no sin, made sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The sinless one, Jesus our King, the sinless one, is made sin. And we'll consider four aspects of this presented to us in Mark's gospel account. Beginning with, beginning with Jesus being made a spectacle for our sin. Okay? Verses 16 through 20. Jesus made a spectacle for our sin. Now church, listen. Jesus who is every bit of whom we we read about at the opening of this sermon, this same Jesus has just been given by the crowd-pleasing Pilate the the sentence of death by crucifixion, with the added measure of of scourging to boot. He's he's sleep-deprived, he's bloodied, he's beaten. Jesus, in this greatly weakened state, is led by the soldiers, verse 16, inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, 
And they called together the whole battalion, which is a tenth of a Roman legion, usually in the neighborhood, get this, of 600 men, men of the most brutal type. And what do they do? You are likely familiar with the account. They they more or less make a rag doll spectacle of him. Like a, like a cat plays with a mouse for entertainment before killing it. Okay? These upwards of 600 brute soldiers make sport of Jesus before they send him on his death walk down the road leading up to the cross where he is to be crucified. The culminating moment Christ is crowned as king is one of spectacle and mockery. Verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak, the color of royalty worn by kings. They they twist together a crown of thorns and they, they place it on his head. At the consummation, remember, remember, at the consummation of Christ's kingdom, when Jesus returns riding on the white horse, wearing a, a robe dipped in blood, we see on his head what? Not one, but many, many diadems, many decorative crowns symbolic of his royal majesty. But here, here, one. And that of twisted thorns, likely pressed firmly into his scalp, mocking him. Verse 18, saluting him, right? Oh, hail, King Jesus, King of the Jews, hail you, Jesus. The reed we see in verse 19, that they repeatedly strike him over the head with, this was first placed in his right hand. The Gospel of Matthew tells us. And this is, this is symbolic of a scepter. A scepter, an, an, ornamented, an ornamented staff carried by rulers on a ceremonial occasions, such as what's happening here, unbeknownst to these men, on ceremonial occasions as a symbol of sovereignty, a symbol of power. The scepter we see Jesus rightly hold in Scripture is one of uprightness. Also, the rod of iron he rules the nations with, right? But here, as the sinless one is made sin, it's a reed they place in his right hand. Completing the the ridicule, completing out the ridicule being cruelly unleashed upon him by this battalion of soldiers. And then taking that reed out of his hand, while in the process of spitting on him and kneeling down, jokingly paying homage homage to him, they then strike him on the head with it repeatedly. Mind you again, this this is not six men or even 60 men, but upwards of 600 men involved in the mockery of Jesus making a spectacle of him for their own amusement prior to leading him out to be crucified. And who would argue that this wasn't humiliating for Jesus? Who would would not argue that? He himself, who holds the nations in derision, right? That's our God to whom all the nations which he has made will come and worship before him who rules them and and shall glorify his name. And he rules them with a rod of iron. This same all-powerful, majestic, eternal son of God, he empties himself, empties himself. He does not avail himself to all that power, listen, all that power that he still retained. He still retained. Just because they took the reed out of his, his hand, the symbolic symbol of power, and beat him over the head with it repeatedly, that doesn't mean that Jesus was powerless. Absolutely not. No way. 
Rather, he allowed himself, he allowed himself to be made a spectacle for our sin. Because that's just it, isn't it? That's just it. The humiliation of sin, the shame of it. You see, there's, there, there is sin we can tolerate to make known. Not never, rather, never tolerate sin. That is not what I'm saying. I want to be clear. But we can tolerate to make known sin amongst, you know, to varying degrees amongst one another. But then there are those secret sins. Those sins only known by us and God. The sins have made publicly known. You never want to step out of your house, let alone look at another person in the face. Whether confessed or not, and I pray they are confessed and forgiven, and forgiven of, that, that no one here, no one listening, no one present is, is knowingly walking in unrepentant sin. But the bottom line is that sin is shameful. Sin is shameful. That's why we try to hide it. Or, or lie to prevent it from being made known, which only compounds the sin and is all the more shameful. But let's try, let's try an illustration, shall we? Let's try an illustration. Think of, think of tolerably known sins, made known sins, like a used pet poop bag. Okay? Sure, it stinks. It's a bit gross, but it's relatively common and tolerated to have exposed. You can handle picking it up. Handle making it known as we, as we ought to. You know, this is good and right. We ought to confess our sins to one another. But in actuality, our sin is a behemoth bag of toxic sludge. And unlike the Grinch catching another load of the Who's waste, saying, oh, like, where does that stench? It's fantastic! One man's toxic sludge is another man's potpourri. Right? It's not, it's not so with our sin. Our sin is heinous. Our sin does reek of the toxic sludge of our own unrighteousness, unrighteousness of, of our depravity, which we would prefer not to be made a spectacle. We don't. I mean, what, what do you think the accuser is accusing us of? He, he doesn't need to imagine things or, or to, to manufacture to, or to, you know, to bring about made up sinful deeds done by us. There is a plentiful amount of material to draw from, from for each of us. I mean, imagine with me, okay? Imagine with me if every vile, every darkened, unrighteous thought, every impure image you've ever had Every depraved deed done in secret, every, imagine every one of those recorded in the book of our life. And to be sure, not one minute detail of our lives is omitted from the recorded pages of our days of which we will give an account. Not one. What if a despicable insert from one of those pages were to be projected onto the screen for all eyes to see and recoil at. I mean, do you get goosebumps thinking about that? I do. Not one of us, no one would not shudder at the thought of such exposure of our depravity. Our sinfulness. It's shameful. 
It's humiliating. Listen. Jesus bore our shame. Jesus was made a spectacle for all our sin. Jesus, to whom all is naked and exposed before the eyes to him whom we must give account, he sees it all. He bore the shame of it. As despising as it was, Jesus bore it on our behalf. Jesus, the the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Did you hear that? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Despising the shame of being made a spectacle for our sin. He endured the humiliation of it. The the prize of heaven, all-powerful king of glory, we read about in the opening of this sermon. That's why I opened with that. The contrast is, crushes you. He was mocked. He was mocked. Don't miss this, church. This was humiliating for Jesus. He endured it, yes, but he despised every bit of it. Same as, same as we would, okay? He despised the shame and humiliation as, as we would and do, which is why we are so terribly reluctant to let those raunchy sins get exposed. The shame is unbearable. Yet Jesus bears it all. He who knew no sin is made a spectacle for our sin, and it was humiliating. And in his humiliation, justice was denied him. And those are not my words. Those are not my words. Those words come from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Justice was denied Jesus, that it would be denied, that it would be denied us. You see, Jesus, he was denied deliverance from judgment given. Okay? Justice justice would be justice would be for an innocent, righteous, sinless one of whom Jesus was and is, justice would be for him to be acquitted, cleared of all charges, indeed exalted for his righteousness. That would be justice. But in his humiliation, that justice was denied him. That those who belong to him, his followers, united to him by faith, may have justice denied for our sin, for our lawlessness, our rebellion, our unrighteous works, which we deserve the punishment, the justice of punishment, shame, humiliation, and condemnation. We deserve this. Jesus didn't. We are denied this justice from God because he laid it entirely upon Jesus in our place. Jesus bore it all. All the just wrath for our sin that it, God's just wrath, may be denied us. And hear me, the justice denied Jesus, the righteous one, in his humiliation, that the justice denied him, we are the benefactors of, standing in his righteousness, imputed to us by faith, 
the justice for his righteousness that was denied him, we are the benefactors of. By faith in Jesus, we are acquitted. We are cleared of all charges. We are blameless before a holy God and our status changed from fallen sinful man to righteous and redeemed, exalted in the church, not our church, his church. His, exalted in his righteousness. It's the double cure, saved from wrath and made pure. The wonder, the wonder of the gospel. I mean, praise God, hallelujah, amen? Jesus, look what God has done through Jesus. God has done all of this through his son so that God, might be just. God's holiness, church, is not compromised. Wrath for sin was given in full. And he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God making, declaring one completely righteous in their standing with him by faith on the merits of Christ. And now we come to something remarkable, additionally remarkable. That's clearly <laughs> remarkable, but it continues. We can, it continues in verse 21, where we have, where we see rather a, a spectator of this. One who's been witnessing it then becomes part of the spectacle. Our second point, a spectator becomes part of the spectacle. We're just looking at verse 21. Let's go and read that along with me, please. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, we don't know much about this man. We don't know much about this man, Simon of Cyrene, prior to this account. He came in from the country, shares that here in the verse. And he is also the father of Alexander and Rufus, which Mark is sure to point out, mind you. Okay, he's sure to point out that detail. So let's start with the fact that he's here. But where, where is here? He's here in Jerusalem during Passover week, right? He, Simon of Cyrene, made it a priority to be here during the annual event of Passover. He is obedient to the law of Moses, to the scriptures commanding the people of Israel, God's people, to come from their dwellings, came from the country, the commandment to come from their dwellings and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. To be here in Jerusalem in observance of Passover. Simon was obedient to this command. And we certainly want to be careful not to deduct too much but I believe it is safe to say he was a Jew looking for, who sought after the promised one spoken of by Moses. Now of his two sons mentioned here, many commentators believe Rufus to be the one Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. He speaks of during his personal greetings in this chapter. And Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been, who was, who has been a mother to me as well. Agreeing with church forefathers that this is the same Rufus that Mark is sure to include in his gospel account in identifying Simon of Cyrene, 
we would then accurately deduct that Simon's wife was the one who was like a mother to Paul. And what a complimentary thing to say about a person, about the Apostle Paul, that Paul would say that about Simon's wife. And though there is is no conversion account provided, I believe there is strong enough evidence to support that this family, at some point in time after this encounter that Simon had with Jesus, that this family were known as believers. Okay? That they they were a Christian family of noteworthiness. Now, why is it, do you suppose, I opened with this verse by saying, it is something remarkable to me? I mean, Simon's a passerby. He gets chosen out of a crowd to carry Jesus' cross. The other gospel, other gospels don't really add any more detail to it. In fact, John's gospel account doesn't mention it at all. So why do I find this remarkable? That a spectator, a spectator, Simon here, becomes part of the spectacle. Because I see it as a vivid portrayal of Christianity taking a hold of you, not you taking a hold of it. You see, you don't don't pick up Christianity as a mere subject matter. Seeking is of necessity, yes, but you don't take up Christianity. Christianity takes a hold of you. I mean, you are compelled by the majesty of God, the glory of God, the, the riches of his love towards you through Jesus Christ. Compelled to pick up your cross and follow, delighted to have his burden upon you so long as you get him. You are compelled to be a part of the spectacle of Christ, to be identified, identified with Jesus and his sufferings, to learn from him who is gentle and lowly in heart that you would find rest for your souls. This takes hold of you. Paul describes Rufus as as one chosen in the Lord. Simon of Cyrene is chosen out of a crowd to follow Jesus. Luke's gospel account uses the word seized to describe it. Seized from the crowd. Just rah, right? Get this, Jesus himself said, you did not what? Choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The Apostle Paul, known as Saul prior to his conversion, he sought to do the Lord's will, but he did so in ignorance. Paul himself said that how zealous he was for the law of God, but he was blind to the truth. What does Jesus say about Paul in the early wakes after his conversion? Acts chapter 9. He is a, guess what? Chosen. Chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christ took a hold of him, church. Christ seized him, and he was compelled. For the love of Christ, what? What does Paul write? Controls me. Controls me, Paul says. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The gospel that seized him. Stopped him in his tracks and sent him on a new course. I do, I do find the mysterious operation of the saving work of God upon the soul of a sinner remarkable. Remarkable. Jesus used the 
use the effects of the wind to describe the work of the Spirit causing one to be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then Scripture marries, up, marries this up with the necessity, yes, the absolute necessity, to seek after the Lord. That his saving work doesn't, doesn't happen passively upon the soul. Just like you get hit out of the, the, by doing nothing. No, you are seeking. Okay, you are seeking. Man bears the responsibility to seek after God. An abundance of scripture testify to that. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If, if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Seeking on the authority of Scripture is of necessity. You got to seek if you are going to find. It's a remarkable mystery. Amen? The mysterious operation of the saving work of God upon the soul of a sinner is remarkable. It's like, it's like pedals on a bike. I've heard this described once as a way to grasp this truth of God's sovereign work of salvation and man's responsibility that is involved. Something that cannot cannot fully be understood. It can't. That's, that's why it's a mystery, a glorious mystery. But I believe it can be grasped with the resulting rest in God and, ela- and elation in God because of it. Okay? I believe that is where we are to operate and be. A rest in it and just an awe of wonder. And I especially like this analogy because it involves cycling, right? Anytime I'm in the saddle, I can just ponder this mystery. Maybe try to get a firmer grip of it for greater elation and praise and worship of God. So you know how a crank set works. You guys get that picture. You got the the large crank, the, the two arms and the pedals, right? So pedals are attached to the arm of the crank set. And as you apply pressure on one pedal, in that same moment, the other pedal propels forward in sync. And so goes the motion that moves you forward. Well, in like manner, seeking the Lord is applying that pressure to the pedal. You applying that pressure, your part in seeking after the Lord. And in that same moment, right in sync, the other pedals coming up from behind. Right? God is actually the one moving you forward. It's like this. Like, God, I'm, I'm going after you. I want to know you. My heart and my mind are set to seek your face. And in that moment of you setting your heart and your mind to seek after the Lord, you feel his back, his hand on your back pressing you towards himself. It's a beautiful mystery. That's why Psalm 14 and 53, which Paul quotes, That's why these verses don't contradict Scripture's command to seek the Lord with all your heart. These verses say, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, not even one. Yet, in the moment you set your mind and your heart out to seek after the Lord, he provides the grace to do it. That that it is God's grace that initiated you seeking him in the first place. And it's his grace that supplies the strength and energy powerfully working in you to move it forward of which you yourself toil and struggle with in doing so. I mean, isn't that just wildly mysterious and full of wonder? It's amazing, a mystery. That's as best as right now in my walk with Christ as I can explain it to you, okay? But it is amazing to me. And I want to toil and struggle as much as I can with his energy and his strength that he, by grace, supplies. And by grace, keeps, right? By the power of God, I am kept in this salvation. Not in my own strength, it's him. And the the set out to seek after God is a way of life. It's not a, I I try today and if nothing, I'm done. There's no toil. There's no struggle in that seeking. No, it it is a mindset and a constant heartfelt pursuit that God will honor his promise in you doing so by just seizing your life. As he sovereignly determines, you will be seized by him. He promises it in his word. On the blood-bought promises of his word, it will happen. It will happen. The word that became flesh died for these promises, which is where we are to seek, right? The world offers all sorts of avenues and and false ways of seeking, but God has provided his word. The only way we can know the Father, only through Jesus, God's revelation of himself from from start to finish, it's all one unified story of Christ. And it is only through Christ we may know and come to the Father. And he purchased these promises that if you seek him with your whole heart, And with all of your mind, he will be found by you and he will seize you and he will set you on a new course and you will be compelled to follow Christ. He will take a hold of you and you will never be the same. It'll it'll just catapult you from being a mere spectator, okay, to actually being a part of the spectacle, to being engaged in the, the mission of the church, which is to propel the gospel, to preach the gospel as God through that and the power of the Spirit builds his church. You'll become a part of that, compelled by his love, compelled by his grace, compelled by his suffering in your place and you yourself compelled to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow him the rest of your days. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. No longer a spectator, but a part of the spectacle, and joyfully so. We have some ground to cover. (laughs) Excuse me. So much good stuff, though. Not to worry. Not to worry. Verses verses 22 through 28, I believe can be worked through rather swiftly without compromising their due attention. All right, we'll take some, take some lengthy, lengthy strides now as we segue to the closing point. In these strides, we'll, we'll encounter some, some really just spectacular aspects of the spectacle, of the sinless one being made sin on our behalf some spectacular aspects of the spectacle, verses 22 through 28. Well, first off, we're just going to go through them. First off, you know, the place where he's taken to be crucified, verse 22, Golgotha, 
which means the place of this goal. Okay, the, the location where the sinless one, the Lamb of God was slain and his holy divine, his holy divine blood poured upon the soil of the foot of the cross, some respectable and influential saints of old held to the belief that this was the very place Adam was buried. The first man through whom came the curse we are all born into. For in Adam all die. All are born into sin. The blood of the sinless one through whom all, or excuse me, through whom we are made alive, his blood, the last Adam, Jesus, his blood was shed on the very cursed soil where the body through whom the curse came lay, providing, providing a cure to those whose lives have been sanctified through faith by the blood of Jesus the sinless one. Credibility of this being 100% a certain fact? Low. However, I believe it is an aspect worth mentioning for it seems fitting, does it not? It seems fitting and worthy of consideration. One spectacular aspect about this location that is credible is the tradition that this place, Golgotha, also known as Calvary, it was the mountain in the land of Moriah on which Isaac was to be offered. It's the same place where the ram was offered instead of him. And that Abraham himself, he had his he had his eye on this day, on this day that Christ is here being crucified, that Abraham had his eye on this day when he called the place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Golgotha, the same very place where Abraham's prophetic words, when God provided the ram, he spoke that Jehovah Jireh are now fulfilled in Christ. And this fulfilled prophecy continues in the preceding verses. After Jesus in verse 23 refuses to drink that which would have given some mild numbing, I mean, that was a purpose, some mild relief to his suffering, but they didn't want it to taste good. You know, it was unpleasant to the taste with the added myrrh mixed in, so it was bitter, but it would have provided some relief to his sufferings. Other Gospels fill in a little bit. Jesus does taste it, puts his tongue to it, so he tastes bitterness, but he, he refuses to drink it. And it's spectacular, in a striking sense, to think of just the, the extent of his suffering, and he was committed. He was committed to experiencing every bit of it. There was no iota of a lift, nothing, of just any sort of relief. He suffered, suffered, suffered. And he experienced every bit of it, even when it was offered to him to have a mild numbness to his suffering. We then read in verse 24, the prophecy fulfilled of dividing his garments and casting lots for them. Psalm 22.18 is where that comes from. And then, the, and then momentarily skipping over verse 25, momentarily skipping over that, we see in verse 26, unbeknownst to Pilate, words he inscribed above the head of Jesus intended to depict why he was shamefully crucified, actually ironically bearing an even greater truth that people did not realize that this was indeed the king of the Jews, who was in verse 27, crucified between two robbers. Once again, fulfilling prophecy, which verse 28 references, if that verse is in your Bible. You guys may be looking for it. I actually was, when I was preparing. Verse, verse 28, when I was beginning this. 
Some translations have it, some don't. The reason, some early man, earlier manuscripts had it, other later ones didn't. And all it says is confirming the prophecy was fulfilled. So whether it, it's there or not, either way, it was yet again fulfilled prophecy. All that took place was according to God's plan of redemption, which Jesus fulfilled in totality. I mean, that, I hope that wonder, that the, the amazement of that, that, how spectacular that is, that Jesus fulfilled everything that was written of him, never loses. It's, it's the amazement of it, the wonder, how miraculous that is. Our last stride now towards our closing point has to do with the time of day the crucifixion took place, as noted here in verse 25. You can glance back to 25 now. The striking aspect about this, being that it was the third hour, which is 9 a.m., was that it is the time the priests should have been attending the service in the temple. Okay? Offering the peace offerings. They should have been doing that. That was their service. This was, what day is this, right? This was the day of the Feast of, the unle- of, of Unleavened Bread. The day and time of holy convocation was to be held. They were not supposed to be here. They were supposed to be in the temple serving the people. Instead of this very hour, instead of fulfilling their roles in the temple that they were so zealous to defend, right? We find them here in the closing verses. Absent from the temple, and venting their hatred of Jesus. And so it is with the hard-heartedness of those who behold the spectacle of Jesus with, with disdain. Which brings us to our closing point. Our closing point in verses 29 through 32. Beholding the spectacle. Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is distinct in its directness of accounts and fast pace. Arranged so often to, to leave his readers to contemplate for themselves. That's one of the genius things or genius aspects of this gospel inspired by God that Mark wrote. The end of this gospel is distinguishedly abrupt on this note. It just stops. And on par with this, we have in our closing account, Mark placing the listener to ask themselves, how do I behold the spectacle? Mark gives three examples. First is the passerbys, verses 29 and 30. Let's go ahead and read those once again. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Do you hear the uh, the snide remarks? Jokes? Altogether indifferent about what's happening? In short, not affected by the gospel. Not affected by it. They don't take Jesus and his claims seriously. These individuals may be curious about the story of Jesus, but reject them of having any relevance to themselves. Having zero, if not negative, interest in identifying themselves with the spectacle of Jesus Christ, with becoming a part of it by being a follower of the sinless one made sin on their behalf. Is this you? Then there is the righteous elite, the self-righteous type, verses 31 and the first half of verse 32. Let's go ahead and read those. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So these people, with with an inflamed view of self, just simply look down their noses at the spectacle. They may be... They may very well have a, have a great biblical knowledge, can articulate the gospel to a T even, but it's not mixed with faith. It's not mixed with faith. There is no, there's no heartfelt love for Christ. It's an intellectual assent only. They're able to critique every facet of the law, but they're void of love. Knowledge of God's word only profits if it's united with faith. Knowledge of God's word only profits if it's united with faith. Seek God in his word, but we depend upon God. We ask for God for that faith to believe. The chief priests and the scribes here They read and taught from the prophets every Sabbath. Yet they did not recognize him whom they were condemning, fulfilling every word of the prophetic writings they taught from. They were blind to the truth. They were hard-hearted. Like these chief priests and scribes, people can have a knowledge of sin while blind to their own darkened mind blind to the truth of their depravity and need of a sinless one made sin on their behalf to rescue them from their helpless state. They're thinking, there's no way, no way will I identify myself with Jesus. That spectacle can't save me. I certainly don't want to be a part of it. And I would include in this group those who hold an an inflated view of their own morality however they would define it, right? We live in that day and age. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. End of judges. It's everywhere. They would certainly fit. Inflated self-view as they define how life ought to be lived. They don't need a savior. They look down their noses at the thought of following Jesus as their Lord and King. No way. I'm good. And then the criminal type. The criminal type, verse 32. Those who were to be crucified with him, or the the second part of 32, those who were to be crucified with him also reviled him. Simply put, Jesus is not a savior to them. You know, these people know they've done wrong, but there's just no conviction, no remorse, no broken heart. And certainly no thought of a need of a Savior, let alone this man. I mean, look at him. He's weak and helpless. Do you find yourself in any of these examples? I'll allow Mark to leave us with this question. How do you behold the bloody spectacle of Jesus. Do you see that as a as do you see that as necessary to save you? If you are a Christian, it ought to be. In fact, the sinless one made sin, Jesus being made a spectacle for your sin ought to be spectacular to you. Just amazing that that God, we read about Jesus, we read about the opening of the sermon, did this for you. Spectacular that the sinless one was made sin so that the purpose behind it, the effect, the outcome, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. How do you behold the bloody spectacle of Jesus? Do you see that as necessary to save you? Necessary for you to be reconciled to God? Let's pray.
Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit, as, as that question is resonating in my mind and heart, as we consider the prize of heaven, the glory and the wonder of our God being made a spectacle for our sin, bearing the shame and humiliation, that you would press that upon us for the purpose of, of humbling us in adoration and wonder and awe and thankfulness. God, we are so thankful that you bore our shame, that you took it all. You endured the the cross and the humiliation, the humiliating guilt of our wrongdoings. God, thank you, Jesus, for the joy that was set before you. You endured it. The joy of redeeming a people for yourself. Thank you for being faithful to the mission God called you to do. And God, I ask, God, give us hearts that are set out and fixed upon seeking you all of our days. Through the ups and downs of life, whether it be valleys or mountaintops, and the, the in-between daily, God, whatever, wherever we are at, may we always have that inclination, that place before you of one.